We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome to our Zoom presentation for Wednesday nights. And of course, the topic for this evening is on, once again, the COVID uh, vaccine, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine uh, that is obviously been rolled out. Uh, and But this evening, we're gonna talk about it under the aspect of some legal questions in connection with vaccines. But let's do a little overview first, but actually we should begin with a prayer, shouldn't we? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. Good Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So to begin, I just want to do a quick intro uh, in connection with what the Holy See has mentioned upon this topic recently. The Vatican Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith states that when ethically irreproachable, that is like sort of untainted COVID-19 vaccines are not available, it is, quote, morally acceptable to receive COVID-19 vaccines that have used cell lines from aborted fetuses in their research and production process, unquote. We've spoken about that in weeks past. Remember, the Vatican also asked us to object to these things because they obviously are cooperation with something which is a moral evil. Cooperation with the evil of the abortion that brought about the cell line used for production or testing of vaccines is remote and distant. That's not true necessarily for the producers of this vaccine, but for those who are receiving it. The process should be objected to again. But the COVID-19 pandemic is such a crisis and emergency says the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that one is allowed to take the vaccine. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF, notes uh, that pharmaceutical companies and government health agencies are supposed to try and, quote, produce, approve, and distribute and offer ethically acceptable vaccines that do not create problems of conscience, unquote. But then something is added in this note from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And this is what it says, quote, at the same time, the congregation recalls that vaccination is not 
as a rule, a moral obligation, and that therefore it must be voluntary, unquote. Note the, the adverb, it must be voluntary. And the absence of other means to stop or even prevent the, epide the ep epidemic, the common good may recommend vaccination, says the CDF, especially to protect the weakest and most exposed. So vaccination, if it's done, should be voluntary. But here's the rub. According to Dr. Fauci, we all remember him, right? He's still around. Quote, if you really want true herd immunity, where you get a blanket of protection over the whole country, you want about 75 to 85% of the country to get vaccinated. I would say even closer to 85%, unquote. Hence, Dr. Fauci. Overall, 60% of Americans say they would definitely or probably get a vaccination for the coronavirus if one were available today. And that is up from 51% just a little while ago, back in September. About four in 10, 39% to be more exact, with the information that they have now, say they would definitely or probably would not get a coronavirus vaccine. So there's a pretty big difference there between supposed numbers needed for herd immunity and the numbers of those who would voluntarily get the vaccine. So why is there a pretty big chunk of the population, 40%, that are very wary of this particular vaccine or actually don't want to do it or take it at all? Why? It's because the vaccine was produced during the Trump administration, some people tell us. <laughs> but perhaps it's something more. The coronavirus vaccine comes with far more side effects than a flu shot. I saw one article, and by the way, I couldn't find it today. Not saying something happened there, but I saw one article stating that the COVID vaccine was 85% more problematic than the flu shot. Oh, it's worse than that. Oh, it's worse than, thank you, Pam, we'll get to you. <laughs> Experts urge people to get it anyway says the San Francisco Chronicle. So even though it's very problematic, get it anyway. About 50% of frontline workers in California's Riverside County have refused to take the vaccine. That's a whole county where firemen, police, and other sort of frontline workers are trying to stay away from this. 50% don't want it. An estimated 60% of Ohio nursing home employees who have been offered the vaccine have refused it already. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine said during a news briefing Wednesday, it's a stark contrast to the number of nursing home residents who have taken the vaccine when offered, which DeWine guessed is about 85%. Quote, we're not gonna make them, but we wish we had a higher compliance, DeWine said. And our message today is, the train may not be coming back for a while. A little analogy here. We're going to make it available to everybody eventually, but this is the opportunity for you, and you should really think about getting it, unquote.
There are also stories in the press of some healthcare workers destroying COVID vaccine dosages by taking them out of refrigeration. And then there's the issues in Norway of all places. And so I'm gonna go to Pam to speak about Norway and what's happened there. But what I've read just as a quick sort of summary, as of January 14th, just a few days ago, and Pam can correct me if I'm wrong, 23 reports of deaths suspected to be associated with COVID-19 vaccines have been submitted to the Norwegian Health Registry. Now for a country that has had altogether somewhere in the area of 500 to 525 deaths from COVID itself, it seems that they've had potentially 23 deaths just from the vaccine in just the last few weeks. So before we get to the legal questions, let's, let, let, let's look a little bit at some of the concerns of vaccine injuries and even deaths that may have been caused or could be caused by the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. So I'd like to introduce Pam. We all know Pam because uh, Pam has been on before a number of times. And of course she produced that wonderful book uh, which is put out by Colby Creation Studies Colby, uh, the Colby Center, uh, Vaccinations, a Catholic Perspective. It's still available, although the sales have been great on this particular book. Uh, so Pam, uh, if you could maybe touch upon what you've read about Norway or perhaps other signs or alerts that we should be concerned about this vaccine in terms of the injuries it might cause. Sure. So. Um there's actually been 33 deaths reported in Norway, not 23. Um, and uh, according to a, a news article I read a couple of days ago, Norway, the um, folks who are investigating those deaths in Norway have confirmed that 13 of them are for sure correlated to the vaccine, which is kind of unprecedented because um, people admitting that vaccines cause death is not a fairly common phenomenon. So um, Norway's looking into those 33 deaths. Uh, Germany's looking into 10 deaths. I believe in the U.S. there's been 55 deaths um, that have been noted to be sort of uh, immediate sequelae or, or follow-ons to receiving the vaccine. And so there's there's actually quite a few um, reports of death that are that are making it into into the headlines. Um, but the adverse events don't end there. So you mentioned that um, this vaccine is more dangerous than the flu vaccine, and the flu vaccine has one of the highest adverse reaction rates um, reported in VAERS. That's the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And they, uh, I, I just did a, I actually just pulled the data today. So this is current as of January 20th, uh, 2021. Um, and I looked at, at uh, flu vaccine reactions. So from September um, 2020 to today, there were um, 6,915 people who reported um, reactions from, from the flu vaccine to VAERS. And they reported about 25,000 different um, observations, everything from uh, pain at the injection site to, you know, uh, general fatigue to some more serious symptoms that were, that were reported very rarely. Um, the most common symptoms were pain. So pain in the extremities or pain at the injection sites or just sort of generalized pain. Um, 
and pain at the injection site is really common. Side effect of vaccines is, is not necessarily um, indicative of anything uh, too, too frightening. Um, so to kind of put that in context, in, in the US as of um, today, as far as I can tell, again, I'm looking at, you know, sort of the most, most up-to-date data available, um, about 4.75% of the US population has been vaccinated. So about 4.7 people per every 100, which would translate to about 15.6 million doses um, of the vaccine that have been delivered since December 14th. And during that, that's, that's roughly a 10th of the flu vaccines that were administered this year. And during that time, they had roughly the same amount of adverse reactions, so 6,741 adverse reactions compared to 6,915. So you're 10 times more likely to be reporting an adverse reaction from the COVID vaccine as you are from the flu, and the flu vaccine is already the one that has the highest reporting rate. Um, and of those 6,700 people, there's about 29,000 reactions that are reported, which is actually higher than the 25,000 for the flu. And the thing that's the most concerning to me is what people are reporting for, for the COVID vaccine are um, the top three are headaches, fatigue, dizziness, followed by chills, nausea, and fever. And I, I just did some quick math and you're 26, more, 26 times more likely to experience those top three symptoms, headache, fatigue, and dizziness after the COVID vaccine than you are for the flu vaccine. So we're looking at more serious um, potential, potentially adverse effects. And even the Pfizer trial data uh, that they collected during the, the vaccine trial, about 10% of people reported grade three. Um, it was one was nine, one was 10, I'm forgetting which is which, but headaches or fatigue. And grade three basically means that this is, this is so bad it interferes with your ability to go about your daily activities. So after the vaccine, about 10% of people were reporting headaches that were so bad that they couldn't go to work that day um, or fatigue that was so bad that they couldn't get out of bed that day. I mean, that we're talking that level of adverse reactions. We're not talking pain at the injection site. So there's, there's quite a few adverse reactions um, to this. And I was, I was uh, visiting with a, a doctor who's a friend of mine this weekend. And um, he was, uh, we were sort of looking at some of the, the videos that have been posted on Facebook and things like that of, of people having these reactions, having spasms after, um, after receiving the vaccine. And you know, he's looking at saying that looks like a central nervous problem. I, I think that's crossing the blood brain barrier. And today I was looking at um, some investigative journalism that was based on a couple of papers that were published um, and they were interviewing a couple of neuroscience, neuroscientists about the, uh, the possibility, can this cross the blood-brain barrier? Can this cause central nervous system damage? And um, yeah, it can. They're seeing the exact same thing that my, my friend was seeing um, in, in these reactions. So this is, this is um, not, not a very safe vaccine. I know um, most of the people listening right now probably are not terribly surprised to hear that, but the numbers are pretty are pretty staggering. Um, and we discussed before, Father, um, maybe not on air, that the, the vaccine is supposedly 95% um, effective, mm -hmm. but those numbers basically mean that you're, that when they looked at people who had what they called confirmed COVID cases, so these were people who had, I think, three of the different symptoms that they listed in their, in their, um, uh, uh, shoot, I've lost the technical word, but their list of symptoms that they were looking for. Um, so three of those symptoms, and then they had a, a confirmed case via PCR test. Um, they found that 
of their 170 cases, 162 of them were in the placebo group and eight of them were in the vaccine group. So they declared it 95% effective. Well, I read an article today and this was actually published on, on January 4th. So this has been around for a couple of weeks and nobody's really talking about it, but they, there were some suspected COVID cases. So these were people who had symptoms, but they weren't actually tested with the nasopharyngeal swab test and the PCR test. Um, and people who had suspected COVID, there were about, I don't know, 30 or 3,000 ish, uh, 3,300, 3,400 um, people. So 1,800 of them were in the placebo group and almost 1,600 of them were in the vaccine group. So they just didn't test about 3,400 people who had suspected COVID, they had symptoms, but they, they didn't get the PCR test done. And we will look at those numbers. We've got really only at, at best a 29% effectiveness of the vaccine. And that's if we throw out the, the people who had symptoms in the first week, because we, we would say, well, maybe those symptoms were possibly due to the vaccine itself and not really due to, to any kind of infection. Um, so the numbers are, are really, really bad <laughs> on a lot of levels for this vaccine. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell, unless you wanted me to talk about sure. sort of specific mechanisms. That's good. I, I'm glad you covered that. Um, you know, when we saw that good nurse a few weeks back, uh, who had received the vaccine and then, you know, we saw her live, uh, like sort of fainting afterwards. And of course the typical response of those professionals who are maybe promoting, the vaccine is, oh, she, she faints all the time, actually, we're, we're told. Um, but now Pam has told us that this claim of Pfizer and Moderna, and maybe, I guess Moderna maybe claims 85%. Uh, uh, I think they were claiming 90, 90 to 95% efficacy as well. They were too. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but that seems to be maybe an, an overestimate, to put it mildly. Right. And they're, and they're just looking at, you know, they're not looking at transmission of the virus at all so they didn't they didn't test everybody for SARS-CoV-2 infection so so that's why you know you have people like Fauci or the CEO of Pfizer coming out and saying well you, you need to keep wearing your mask because if you know this vaccine may not actually prevent you from having an asymptomatic infection although there's a lot of good data that asymptomatic infections aren't um, contagious I was um, looking at a couple of uh, reports today, a lot of the data on the asymptomatic infections um, originally came out of China. And uh, that suggested that, that it might be transmitted asymptomatically. But there was a British um, medical researcher who kind of took a look at all the data and collated all of it, found that there was, um, well, most of it was coming out of China. And then there were uh, a few cases that were sort of picked up and just kind of cited again and again and again in the literature. So now, now you have, you know, sort of 70 instances of this one, you know, um, uh, case, case study in, uh, th that are, that are now being just sort of repeated over and over and over again in the literature. And this is unfortunately not uncommon. I, I saw this when I was doing some research for some of my talks on creation and evolution. Um, sometimes you will have something that's just sort of accepted as fact. It's been stated in hundreds of papers and, you, you go back and, and so you, you sort of look at who references, who references, who references, who, and you can trace it all back to sort of one original statement. And I think that's happening a lot with, with this data with the asymptomatic spread. And so she sort of meta-analyzed it all and said, we really don't have evidence of asymptomatic spread. And a, another curious thing I learned today is we really don't have evidence that children can transmit it to adults. 
so um, it doesn't really spread in schools very well. Right, but I think I want to go back and if you could just say that again, the, the notion that the vaccine, when a person receives it, it doesn't necessarily make them non-infectious towards others and you still have to wear the mask anyway. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. So the, the, the data that Pfizer collected didn't show anything about transmission or infectivity at all. It only showed so that the 95% effective rate was only um, for people who had confirmed COVID and had, so that they're, they're, they're calling it more severe symptoms, right? So, so the vaccine is 95% effective according to Pfizer. And this is based on a sample size of 170. So this is kind of baloney in the research sense. Um, but based on a sample of 170 people, uh, you know, we, we think that it's 95% effective at um, reducing your symptoms if you happen to catch the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And um, I learned, I also learned today that there were 371 individuals that were thrown out of the, the efficacy analysis for, um, in quotes, important protocol deviations on or prior to seven days after dose two. And there were 311 of those 371 individuals were from the vaccinated group, while only 60 were from the placebo group. Mm -hmm. So um, there, there's uh, some things about the study that need to be explained before we can really determine exactly how to interpret it. Right. Okay, well, thank you, Pam. So um, I guess when we look at this vaccine, we find, for example, that there's some objectionable elements to it in regards to Pfizer and Moderna having been tested in some way at least in aborted fetal cell lines. We know that. And of course, AstraZeneca, which is coming out soon or maybe might have arrived. I don't know yet, Pam, uh, if AstraZeneca has got its version. I can check that for you. If you can check on that. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be more produced within the uh, actual aborted fetal cell lines. So it's objectionable. There might be an increase in the possibility of vaccine injuries, including what Pam said that actually in Norway, it might be 30 plus deaths attributed to the vaccine shot in just the first few weeks of administering them. Um, and then of course, your own conscience, your own healthcare choices that you make with all these questions, especially with the notion of you got to get 85% to get herd immunity, which uh, Dr. Fauci has told us. Uh, it seems that there's a lot of pressure to have the vaccine and maybe in some places, workplace or maybe some government agency or hospital, there might be more of a mandate. So that's why we want to bring in our friend, a lawyer friend of Pam's, who was going to talk about legal questions regarding um, vaccines. But before that, we just could maybe have him give a little bit of a background and also perhaps um, provide uh, maybe some, some basic terminology about issues regarding rights and claims uh, and so forth. So uh, if, if you could maybe introduce yourself, that would be great in terms of your background at least. Hey, Father, can you hear me? I can, yes, thank you. Okay, excellent. So, I guess we'll start here. Uh, just four or five minute introduction, cool? Yes, please, that'd be great. Okay, so in my final year, before graduating from a D 
decent law school, I found myself looking into the faith. Uh, at that time, I was an unbaptized person who had been raised by agnostic parents. From there and on my own, I had oscillated between atheism and agnosticism for much of my life. So I was, uh, I am familiar with the typical new atheist arguments, if you can call them that, of uh, Harris, Dawkins, uh, the bombastic Hitchens. <laughs> However, as I learned of the actual philosophical arguments for the existence of God held by actual philosophers and theologians, I readily saw that those actual arguments could not be easily dismissed. Uh, concurrently, as I explored these philosophical questions, I was also delving into history generally and different religions specifically. On both accounts, there seemed to be something fundamentally different about Christianity and specifically the Catholic Church. On the latter point, as Professor Vermeule succinctly really beautifully puts it, uh, to paraphrase, uh, there is some logical sense whereby apostolic succession and the person of St. Peter is, is prior to everything, including even scripture. And with that, it seemed dispositive that any, you know, quote unquote, organization that was not apostolic could not be the church that our Lord founded. Uh, further, I discovered that similarly dispositive arguments are applicable to non-Catholic churches that may in some sense legitimately claim apostolicity. So I was spending a lot of time looking into these matters as I was finishing up my law degree, and I decided to forego an immediate legal career, and instead I spent a year catechizing full-time. Uh, I approached the faith with the mind of a skeptic and the analytical tools of a lawyer. And, uh, you know, truthfully, there was perhaps a part of me that wanted to debunk it because as someone with uh, a uh, orientation toward pride, it's not the easiest to submit to authority that is not my own. Uh, you know, yet it, over time, as I was a catechumen, I, I, I came to fully believe as um, St. Augustine explains, uh, we believe so that we might understand. And that was certainly true in my case. Uh, ultimately, after uh, basically a year of catechesis full time, I received triple sacraments in a single night. Uh, you know, those being baptism, being confirmed and receiving first communion. I also received what uh, a hug from my favorite Franciscan, who is generally speaking, otherwise opposed to the practice. Um, so my faith continues to grow, uh, along with my understanding thereof. And so early last year, a mutual friend connected me with Pam and, uh, we've had an ongoing dialogue about the topic of vaccines, uh, writ large ever since she invited me to speak. So here I am. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to shed some light on uh, the topic at hand. Um, I, I don't know. I, I have a bit of a little disclaimer I have to give. Do you want to give me to give that now? Sure, please do, yeah. Okay, so uh, nothing I say today is legal advice. Um, it's unlikely that I'm even licensed in a jurisdiction relevant to any given listener. 
And even if I were, no listener is a prospective client. Uh, I am going to speak in general terms and I've chosen to simplify certain matters for pedagogical reasons or um, also due to time constraints. So on that latter point, Father, uh, feel free to hurry me along if need be. Okay. <laughs> uh, my aim is to educate the listener on some general principles that are generally applicable. Um, so I guess just final point in this sort of preamble, uh, when I'm wearing my legal hat, I'm in the business of making arguments and I'm gonna stay fully in that lane. So uh, specifically anything I say is not meant to be commentary on morality or medicine. I'm not qualified to make such comments, though uh, hopefully we can have an interesting discussion here, Father, with you and Pam, that we'll uh, get into uh, the, the interface of these uh, three matters. Excellent. Um, and I think you know, that's important for our listeners. Um, you know, this good lawyer is going to give us legal answers. And he's obviously a Catholic. He's a believer. And morality is important. And Healthcare is important, but he's going to be giving legal answers. And that's important for us to see that, you know, how we are protected under the law and what are our rights uh, in regard to this question. So maybe you could begin with, with some fundamentals, uh, uh, like, for example, what is a fundamental right and so forth? Yeah, um, if I may, maybe I can give this a quick roadmap of everything I want to cover. I think it'll um, frame things nicely for the audience. Sure. So um, first, we're going to talk about fundamental rights and uh, specifically the right to refuse medical treatment, which is the right at issue when we're talking about the potentiality of mandatory vaccines. Next, I'm going to talk about applicable law at the state level. Um, there's going to be several layers of analysis here, and it's, it's not me trying to make it more complex. It's just simply it is complex. Uh, hopefully, I keep track of everything and I'm going to certainly stop and recap at several points, um, as many of the ideas are interconnected. And so there's no clearly uh, correct linear way to present those ideas. Uh, finally, I'm going to talk briefly about federal action. So first, we're talking about state government. And what I see is a uh, likely possibility for how this current situation plays out. Uh, Father, if you or Pam want to interrupt me at any time, please do. Um, it's certainly possible, probably likely, that there's something that I take as an implicit given that is not at all obvious to a non-lawyer. So, okay, so let's dig into the idea of a fundamental right. Um, a fundamental right, for our purposes, is a right that is deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Uh, so, for instance, the right to vote and the right to free speech are considered fundamental rights. Now, whether a right is a fundamental right is critical. The reason is, is that under modern constitutional jurisprudence, any infringement upon a fundamental right will be closely reviewed by the courts. That's in contrast to the infringement upon a non-fundamental right, which will mean that the government action in question is subject to far less judicial scrutiny. But as to fundamental rights, the standard of review is called strict scrutiny. Here, I don't, there's no need for me to get into the legal weeds. The standard itself has been applied in different ways in different contexts. But 
it will suffice to say for our purposes that to survive strict scrutiny, a governmental infringement upon a fundamental right will need to further a compelling interest by way of a narrowly tailored means. So for now, let's just notice that there's two parts to that definition and that the governmental action will be reviewed in terms of both its end and its means. Okay, so that's a fundamental right in the abstract, which brings us to the right we are specifically discussing tonight, which is the right to refuse medical treatment. You might actually be sensible if you were to refer to this as your body, your choice. Mm -hmm. Now, recall the definition of a fundamental right. The right to refuse medical treatment is rooted in the history and tradition of the nation for several reasons. And uh, perhaps most prominently is that if a medical care provider performs a medical procedure without consent, then they will have committed a battery at common law. And common law is just the uh, body of law created by judges and it goes however far back. Additionally, there are court statements that strongly suggests, if not state outright, that the right to refuse medical treatment is rooted in our history and in our tradition. Okay, so just let's stop there and recap for a second. There are fundamental rights, and in order for a government to infringe upon those rights, the government must have a compelling interest, and its pursuit of that interest must be narrowly tailored. Further, the right to refuse medical treatment is almost surely a fundamental right. Therefore, a court will closely analyze any infringement of the right to refuse medical treatment, including in the situation of a mandatory vaccine. Um, from here, uh, Father, uh, or, go ahead. Yes, yes, of course. Um, yeah, would, would that, uh, that apply to sort of any, any vaccine? Because I know that there are, um, there are parents of my acquaintance whose children were vaccinated without their consent, um, particularly leaving the hospital given a Hep B um, vaccine. It, so, so would that even that qualify as battery? That wasn't in the context of school vaccines. Okay. No, or, I I, I would need to look more specifically at that. Like, how old are the children? Um, infants. Right. So, I mean, that would. Um... There's probably law on the books that mandates that be my guess. And then there would be no battery, but um, as a general matter, yes, if you, um, you know, go and pin a person, then it would be a battery. Battery would just be touching someone and unwanted touching that hurts or offends. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So moving on. Now I have to add in a little bit of uh, context so everyone can follow along here. Our system of government is bifurcated. This means that the federal government handles some matters and the state government handles some matters. Um, this is called federalism and one might draw some parallels to the Catholic principle of subsidiarity. Now, whether it is the state or the federal government acting, the federal constitutional protection for fundamental rights is applicable. Now, as to the public health, both the states and the federal government are able to exercise power. For now, though, we're just going to strictly talk about state actors. Okay, so 
we obviously have more than one state in this union of ours. Thus, these different states, they may develop inconsistent laws. On one hand, uh, this can be a good thing as people can vote with their feet. Nonetheless, uniformity can also be important. Um, so at times what is known as a model act will be written and it will be suggested that states enact this model act. That way law will be uniform across those enacting states. Now, while the goal of a model act is to have uniform law, it is nonetheless not so uncommon for the states to make substantive changes to a model act before enacting it. Okay, so at issue here is a model act in particular called the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. This was written in 2001 by individuals from Georgetown and Johns Hopkins University, and it was in response to 9-11 and fears of bioterrorism. Uh, quick aside, there are two drafts of this model act floating around. There are some notable differences between the two. So if you pull one up, I suggest you find the second draft, which will be dated in December of 2001. The first is, I believe, in October. Now, this act has been promulgated by basically all the states. However, like as typically happens, and I just noted, the states have modified the act in numerous ways. Nonetheless, our correct analytical starting point will be to look at this model act and then to note deviations as we move along. Okay, any questions? No, uh, okay, so. I, I've, I've heard it once already before, so I may not be the best person to ask questions. Oh, well, you should but present I'll them. monitor the chat for you. Okay, sounds good. Um, okay, so for our purposes here, here's the situation. The act defines what's called a public health emergency. And this is a situation whereby an imminent threat of an illness poses a high probability of a large number of deaths or serious or long-term disabilities in an affected population. Stymieing such an emergency would qualify as a compelling government interest. So recall earlier, we talked about strict scrutiny being the standard if a fundamental right is infringed upon. So this end, uh, this interest would satisfy the first element of a court's strict scrutiny analysis. So that leaves this question of a means by which to achieve this interest, and it must be narrowly tailored. Now, section 603 of the Model Act, it provides that during a public health emergency, a public health authority may vaccinate persons. Further, it may isolate or quarantine individuals who are either unable or unwilling to be vaccinated. Now, this is an important point. This is one of those spots where there is sizable differences between how the states have enacted the Model Act. So under the Model Act, a person may forego vaccination for medical, religious, or conscientious reasons. However, some states have left these exemptions out. For instance, Arizona, in certain situations, it delegates the power to mandate vaccinations, and there does not appear to be any sort of exception provided. Um, Florida is another. 
there, if an individual poses a danger to the public health and there is no practical way to isolate or quarantine that individual, the state health official may use, uh, quote, any means necessary, evidently borrowing from our pals from the Black Panthers, to vaccinate or treat the individual. At the other end of the spectrum, Minnesota statutorily affirms that even in the presence of an emergency, individuals have a fundamental right to refuse medical treatments, which includes vaccinations, which is actually enumerated in the statute. So those examples are the extremes and the other states fit somewhere on the continuum. What I'd like to do is put a pin in the topics of exemptions, medical, religious, and conscientious. We can certainly talk about all these later, but it would, for, it would seem prudent to first lay out the total framework. Um, so we will assume an individual has been unable or unwilling to be vaccinated, and so they can be isolated or quarantined under the Model Act. Isolation and quarantine are defined in several different ways. But the basic difference between the two is that isolation refers to people who are confirmably sick, whereas quarantine refers to people who have been exposed, but we're not sure whether or not they're infected. Um, I don't see a need to get into the weeds here, but I'll simply note that it will be easier for a government to argue for isolation than for quarantine. And this just sort of highlights that uh, these are always balancing issues between you know, qualitative rights. And they're usually tend to be uh, results oriented, unfortunately. So in this scenario with the unvax, I'm sorry, what's this? Could you, could you uh, explain to the audience what you mean by results oriented? Um, yes, I, I suppose I'm being a glass half empty kind of guy. But suppose we have something called the Constitution and we are in favor of something called abortion. We might look at this Constitution and we might argue that somewhere in it, somewhere is this right to an abortion. Um, so we start with that as our result that we want to get to. And then as clever lawyers, we argue accordingly. So that would be... Um, you know, results oriented. In contrast, we can take a process oriented approach whereby we may reach conclusions that we don't prefer, but we are loyal to the process, right? So, I mean, uh, the last SCOTUS term with Bostock, the transgender case, you know, what is the meaning of sex? Uh, Gorsuch's opinion may be an example of this um, for anyone that's familiar. So, okay, so in this scenario, with the unvaccinated individual during a declared public health emergency, it seems clear that the state will have the power to impose isolation and quarantine measures. When I say clear, I'm talking about my takeaway from reviewing relevant case law. So, you know, this seemed, let me, uh, I have this flagged as a spot where I should recap a little. So a state government who is acting under powers granted under some version of the Model Act after a public health emergency has been declared 
it has the authority to isolate or quarantine an individual who, for whatever reason, has not been vaccinated. Um, as to this situation, the next few things I'm going to say are particularly highly fact intensive, but just sort of where the wolves are at, so to speak, in the woods. So um, in this situation, the individual who is being quarantined or isolated, they undoubtedly have certain substantive and procedural due process rights. And I'm just going to like very 10,000 foot up highlight some of this. So first they are entitled to reasonable and adequate notice of the order and an opportunity to be heard by an impartial decision maker. Now that said, in this scenario, when we're talking about a pandemic, the opportunity to be heard and to present one's own case may be delayed until after an order is imposed. But the important point to note is that there will be some statutory right to ultimately speak to some judge. Now, under the Model Act, a failure to obey an isolation or quarantine order is a misdemeanor. Uh, further, it's a misdemeanor for a person who is not under such an order to enter into quarantined or isolated premises unless they are also authorized to do so by the proper public health authority. So if you were isolated or quarantined, I couldn't come visit you unless I had proper authorization? Um, or you could yourself be isolated or quarantined in the same area. Um, these areas could be defined in, well, they could be defined however we like, I suppose. But um, in general, yes, you couldn't or you would be subject to a misdemeanor. Um, this can obviously get into some issues when we think about households. Um, that's really getting into like the fact intensive weeds and probably not prudent here, but um, you know, we can talk at some point. So um, just to sort of flesh this out a literal, a little bit, um, I'm gonna enumerate some questions that it is recommended that judges ask when reviewing or issuing isolation and quarantine orders. And this just sort of gives a flavor of what will be looked at if someone is unvaccinated and subject to one of these orders, right? So um, does the order adequately address the care and support of the individual's dependents? Does the order satisfactorily address the provisioning of food, medicine, and other necessities? Will the isolated or quarantined individual be confined in an appropriate facility as opposed to an area that um, might be uh, seemingly more punitive, like a jail? Are they going to put you in a jail, right? As opposed to your own home or, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, Sheraton down the road kind of thing. Um, has the court considered unique cultural or personal circumstances? So here for us Catholics, access to the sacraments would be certainly a viable factor to be argued for. Has the, what's that? That's really good to know. Yeah, it's, so it's, yes, that is, that, yes, this is good to know. Um, 
Has the court considered the impact of the individual's financial livelihood and employment? Um, obviously in the virtualized world now, that's less likely, but not everyone is working from a distance. And if you're not, and you are subject to an isolation or quarantine order, this would be a big deal. Now, one final suggested question. Now this is written as a, uh, as a bench review for, for judges to sort of like quickly acclimate themselves to the law at issue because you know, judges, people in general certainly don't see these sort of issues every day. Even though violation of an order is a misdemeanor, as I stated previously, it's recommended that a court consider whether the use of deadly force is appropriate to enforce the order. So is, uh, you know, someone going to go any means necessary to keep you in your house or whatever? I don't know, but that's, that's certainly on the table. Um, any questions? Yeah, I guess um, in terms of, this is sort of an objective presentation. If you have a major healthcare concern in a place in the world itself, pandemic as they would call it perhaps, um, this is that scenario where there might be, uh, because I think the government, I mean, in terms of the encouraging of uh, people getting vaccinations, that's one thing, but this more uh, mandated version of the vaccines, get the vaccine or be isolated, or if you are infected, quarantined, um, is that something that, that you've seen at all specifically in any like enforcement sections? You might have a law in the books, but have you, have you seen any enforcement of that um, either in Europe or here in regards to uh, mandated? And if you don't, then you are isolated. Oh, there's certainly case law in the books at the federal level. We're talking about... Um, new arrivals who have been outside the country okay. but no there's there's substantial case law that would indicate that states who have a compelling interest in protecting the uh the health of the community can mm -hmm. isolate um cases with smallpox and others are certainly there and they've gone up to the supreme court so it, it should be taken as a given that there's now there, there's not anything close to, you know, something that would be applied population wide. And we're going to get into that because I think that changes the analysis somewhat in both good and bad directions. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'll go, no, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, for sure. Um, Okay, so let's just recap where we're at. And I'm not watching the question and answers at all, Pam. So if somebody yeah, asked I'm, a question. Don't worry. Okay, just making sure. Um, oh, got one job right now. Okay, I can handle it. Um, in order to infringe upon a fundamental right, which the right to refuse medical care almost certainly is, a government action must be aimed at a compelling end that is pursued through a narrowly tailored means we have concluded that mitigating a properly declared public health emergency 
would be a legally sufficient compelling interest. Um, further, I've noted that the Model Act provides vaccinations, quarantining, and isolating as means that may satisfy the constitutional means requirement. Further still, we have noted that in many cases, at least some exemptions will be available to individuals who do not wish to be vaccinated. So these would be the medical, religious, and conscientious objections. Okay, so things might get a little more complicated now. <laughs> so that's why I want to do the recap. So because the focus of the discussion tonight is mandatory vaccines, um, I'm going to bring up some points that could potentially possibly push the analysis to make them more legally justifiable. And on that, we're going to look at, I'm going to dive a little more into the narrow tailoring requirements of the strict scrutiny analysis. And basically, I see two situations as places where analysis starts to creep towards that uh, illegal justification for mandatory vaccines. So first, to be narrowly tailored, courts have held that the means to obtain the governmental end cannot be over or under inclusive. Um, so basically for our purposes here, there can't be what's called broad grants of authority, broad grants, I'm sorry, broad grants of discretion in implementing the whatever action. And so this gets to the medical, religious, and conscientious exemptions permitted in the Model Act. So put another way, a state like Minnesota that has a fully discretionary regime, it might run afoul of constitutional requirements due to its laxity. The argument would be that opt-out is so widely available the means is under-inclusive, and thus there is reason to doubt whether the compelling interest is in actuality so compelling. This could and likely would swing in the other direction if a state were to try and disallow even medical exemptions. Does that make sense? It does, yep. Okay, cool. Um, second nuance as to narrow tailoring. It may not be sufficient for a means to be narrowly tailored if there is in fact a less restrictive alternate means available. And this could be interesting because what would end up happening is we'd be pitting vaccines versus quarantining, isolating as to which is quote unquote less restrictive. In the literature I've looked at, I've noted some arguments that wide avoidance of vaccines can lead to general skepticism and thus quarantining would not be a viable alternative if done so by a large number of people. So in other words, if 2% of people in the affected population say we're going to quarantine and that's that, that would be different than if 40% 40, 40 of people said so. Um, further, it has been argued that many of the same characteristics that lead to the spread of disease in the first place might be present in a 
mass quarantining situation. Um, perhaps Pam would know more about that than I, but that's that seems to be the sort of um, preliminary argument that might be advanced if somebody were to say isolating and or quarantining is insufficient for our purposes here. Pam? I'm sorry, did you want me to actually comment on that? Yeah, if you could. I'm um, curious. Uh, in terms of like the effectiveness of quarantining? Yeah, so if 90% if, uh, of the population were quote unquote quarantining in their homes and you know flesh out the nuances however I mean does this then start to look like there is no quarantining at all like I, I'm not really sure that makes a ton of sense to me yeah um there's like a bunch of different directions I could go with that but there's not a lot of um I mean I've I've not I've not done enough research into the effectiveness of quarantining to like really be able to comment on it effectively. Um, I'm not sure I can answer your question. Oh, okay. That's okay. I was just adding some, uh, I mean, you know. I have my own personal opinions about quarantining, but uh, uh, we all, we believe in strictly the science here, no personal opinions. Um, opinions not allowed. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, people do catch it uh, while quarantined. Um, uh, quarantining certainly didn't say if you, if you sort of standardize um, the numbers of uh, uh, people, so, you know, numbers per, per million or numbers per thousand, um, we have roughly the same infectivity rate as countries that didn't quarantine. Um, and so I think uh, it, it could be argued that quarantining would be ineffective at... Uh, at stopping spread. But, okay. You know, the, the, the powers that be would have to sort of completely reverse their position on that because they're maintaining right now that quarantining does stop the spread. So um, there'd have to be a lot of doublespeak, I think. To, okay. You know, just for, to, to, to try to argue from a legal, legal perspective that quarantining was not uh, effective. Okay. So that makes sense to me okay. that you, you'd have to argue it both ways and that you know, often happens, not just the uh, the realm of law. Right. Well, it's, I guess when you were talking about results oriented, um, I feel like science has become results oriented instead of process oriented, especially with this whole pushing the vaccine through. Um, the, the safety trials were definitely results oriented. Interesting. Okay. So, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you can do that by, by changing the, um, uh, the, the outcome that you're looking for. In a clinical trial, so you can look for a surrogate endpoint versus an actual endpoint. You know, so they look for the surrogate endpoint of of um, uh, COVID cases as they define them, rather than looking at hospitalizations or death rates or any of the things that actually, actually, you know, would tell you if there was a big difference or not. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, so I I just fleshed out those two nuances, and we can add more dimensions and more layers to that analysis, but I don't think it's um really worth getting into until we see how things actually unfold. Now, I'm going to take a step back here and make a more general statement. We've noted that these states are going to have disparate approaches. And presumably, some people are going to get a vaccine, other people are not. Some states will try to enforce however, others will not. 
and there's going to be wide asymmetry in the country as a whole. So, I mean, this leads me to believe that at some point, maybe soon, maybe not, probably soon, the federal government will look to establish a uniform approach. There's certainly ample authority for it to do so. Um, to the extent it does, it would preempt any state government efforts. Broadly stated, there's nuance there, but um, the important point to note is that the same constitutional protections that I've been uh, enumerating here as to strict scrutiny would also be available. Ultimately, what we have, what's going to happen in our system is that the Supreme Court will weigh in and um, you know they will look at all the factors and they will come to a decision. That's what we would be looking at, assuming there is a large political fight back and forth about the nature of vaccines. You know, it could be the case if you say that we need upwards of 85% of people vaccinated and only, you know, 5% of the population cares and ends up isolating, then it, then it seems less compelling to make that case. Right. Um, was it 40% father don't want to be vaccinated? No, I think that 40% um, of the population, at least in terms of polling, would definitely not or probably would not, unless they learned a lot of new information, get the vaccine. That seems to be the present polling. It's gone up, or I should say actually down, in right. terms of, of objecting to the vaccine. And so perhaps with more media and uh, sort of the, the oh, narrative okay. and the expectations, you know, that there would be this sort of lowering of objections to the vaccine. I meant to, to throw this out earlier, um, to apologize, I'm interrupting the, the legal narrative, but um, the, the WHO has come out and said, at least last I checked, which was last week, that they don't really know what the herd immunity threshold for COVID-19 is, or SARS coronavirus 2, I guess actually is. Um, so the CEO of Pfizer said 75%, Fauci said 75 to 85%. Nobody actually knows this. And there, there are researchers who are saying it's as low as 20%, which we've pretty much already attained um, in a number of places in the world, um, for at least for it to stop circulating to any sort of vast degree. Um, so that may be a little bit too low, but I, I've seen a lot of estimates hover kind of right around um, 50%. So, um, it, again, we're going getting into the science rather than the um, opinions, but uh, I, I don't think that we need 75 to 85% of vaccine coverage anyway. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that changes the, the thought or the argument at all, but. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly could. I mean, so as a function, when we're trying to determine the percentage we need for herd immunity, I mean, sort of the, the first variable there is going to be how much this vaccine lowers infectivity, correct? Well, we don't know if it does. So. Right. So, I mean, well, I mean, it, it, <laughs> we, 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 know it's, we know it's less than 100 and it could be as low as zero. I mean, is that what? Exactly. We, we know, we know yeah. it's a number somewhere between zero and 100. Yeah. So, I mean, lawyers, this doesn't apply to me, but as a general matter, aren't 
not not such quantitative thinkers. They don't like math. So presumably this sort of that this wouldn't be like an expected value situation, but I mean, that's how you would end up doing it. I think, you know, if we have a range of infectivity, you know, or, or lowering infectivity, 20, 40, 50, whatever percent. But, um, you know, that could maybe be a later day to discuss. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of like the framework of what we're looking at. It's obviously very open right now. Tomorrow, something could happen that materially changes the situation. Right. But, I mean, these these are all the pieces, parts on the board, right? So, um, so could you, fo- I mean, you, you probably will go forward with this, but um, could you focus in on those exemption questions just a little bit? Um Medical, I mean, obviously, I guess a person who might be allergic to these things, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, actually, even before we get to legal exemptions, um, people who are administering the vaccines are basically saying, if you have any kind of life-threatening allergic reaction, you should not take the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines um, mm-hmm. because they're very allergenic. Um, and uh, there have been a, a number of reports of people kind of ignoring that anyway and saying, oh, well, you have an allergy to bees. Well, I guess, you know, you don't have an allergy to one of the vaccine components, so we'll go ahead and vaccinate you and people having pretty serious reactions to that. So um, I would think you wouldn't even necessarily need a medical exemption for allergies. They should be screening for that. Um, but some other things might might require or... or uh, well, what if you might be pregnant? You know, this is for the female, female, you know, sex, not gender, that might be, um, you know, end up pregnant in, you know, X number of months. Isn't there something where it's contraindicated for them? Uh, not in the U.S. So again, we're not really dealing with science; we're dealing with opinion. Um, in the U.S., it's it, despite the fact that it's never been tested in pregnant women, and there's been concern raised about the possibility of it sensitizing uh, a person to the uh, approaching that's found on the placenta. Um, and whether it does this or not, it, we don't we don't know. But the concern has been raised, and the safety studies should be done before it's recommended in in pregnant women. Um, but they haven't been. So um, uh, as of right now, you know, the, the, the CDC is, rec- is saying, you know, go ahead and get it if you're pregnant. It's, it's no big deal. Um, so yeah, the UK is a little bit more conservative. They're saying don't, don't get it if you're pregnant because it hasn't been tested in pregnant women, but it also hasn't been tested in the elderly and everybody's rolling it out into nursing homes. Understood. So we can look at the, in the context of mandated school vaccines to get some idea here. Sure. And there are two states, I believe, that don't even permit a medical exemption. And there have been legal challenges against this. These, and uh, they've not been successful. Um, I've not dug terribly into the weeds there, but most states permit a medical exemption. And if this is going to be a population-wide, everyone-mandated vaccine, I would be very hard-pressed to say that to see that it would be constitutional if it, there was no medical exemption. Now, of course, the you know the importance is in the details. If your medical exemption is simply you stating you know, makes me feel bad. Well, I mean, this starts to look like a conscientious objection. 
Um, do you have a note from your doctor and so on and so forth? Um, that there's, you know, there's lots of nuance here that can be flushed out, but certainly as a legal matter, the medical exemption would be the strongest one. The, the religious exemption is interesting because now we have to bring in establishment clause issues and uh, really equal protection too. But um, if a government tries to uh, weigh in on whether this is like an authentically held religious belief, then they're going to run into establishment clause issues because it, they, they, the government can't discriminate. So, um, you know, you can be a Scientologist or whatever. Um, yet alternatively, if the government allows a quote-unquote religious exemption and it's, uh, you know, it's a self-certification, then things may be so relaxed that we now have under-exclusivity. So in some sense, the, the uh, disparity in how states have enacted these, um, their versions of the Model Act, we see, um, you know, like preemptive gamemanship to position themselves in a way that they can survive a constitutional analysis and still, you know, re reach the result they want. And, you know, I'm not a constitutional law lawyer, but, um, you know, the, this is where, um, you know, this is, this is my general sense of things. Can we circle back on the religious exemption for just a second? Yeah. Because we had a question in the chat um, about the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith making a statement about the COVID vaccine being ethical um, and that undermining a Catholic's ability to claim religious exemption. But based on what, what we discussed and, and what you just said here, which may have um, been uh, not quite caught um, the, the full impact of it. Uh, basically, like, if you make a religious exemption, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you mm -hmm. claim a religious exemption, they're not allowed to go and, like, do research on the Catholic Church's official position on vaccines and say, well, I'm sorry, the USCCB put out a statement that said it's okay, or the CDF put out a statement that said it's okay, so therefore, you can't have a religious exemption. Like, you can claim a religious exemption, and, and then because of the fact that we respect the freedom of exercise of religion in the U.S. and that's a fundamental right, like you were talking about earlier, um, since that is a fundamental right, I am free to practice it however I choose, and I can claim a religious exemption without really having um, to worry about there being some document out there that says, you know, it's, it's moral for Catholics to receive the COVID vaccine. Right, so I mean, the fact that there is such a document could certainly be probative against the person who's claiming the exemption, but you it wouldn't be this in layperson terms. Well, I mean, it would, uh, you know, we're looking at balancing issues and all things considered, you'd rather not have that statement than have it. Okay. But, um, you know, with um, current positioning, sort of, you know, bottom to top hierarchy, it would seem to me that I can have my own opinion and, you know, the, 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 the statement of the bishops is certainly not dogmatic. So, I mean, I don't think this would be, this would in any way like preclude you from making the argument, right? I mean, right. you could, we could, we and, could make, I, mean, I guess from a, from a non-Catholic perspective, I could come up with all kinds of other Catholic statements by Catholic authorities saying that it's not in fact okay. Um, and from a non-Catholic perspective, they wouldn't necessarily be aware of the, the difference in magisterial authority there. 
Yeah, I mean, a court's not a court's not going to get into the weeds here. Okay. As far as you know, not you know, it would have no interest, and it would be Perfect. running afoul of like long-standing precedent. Um, you know, you could, I mean, you could abstract a little bit here, and we could pull a statement that's you know simply referring to Christian belief, and you know, does this then bind you know heretics or you know, someone that purports to be, uh, you know, a non-Trinitarian Christian. So, you know, it's, it, ultimately it's going to be looking at the individual person and do they hold a sincere belief? Um, yeah. Does that so, make yeah, sense? I think the, yeah, if you could repeat that. So it, it, what you just said, so it's not necessarily, at least legally speaking, not what some magisterial figure might have said in a document, which is non binding, um, or just because you've seen a cardinal or archbishop actually receive the vaccination on TV, that does not necessarily apply to the individual in terms of his decision regarding vaccination. Correct. And I, I mean, I would state the proposition much more strongly. It's not just that it doesn't necessarily, but it's certainly, you know, probably doesn't bind in a legal situation okay i you know i've not extensively dug into um freedom of religion and free exercise issues but um my strong sense is this would not be like a major issue okay um and, and if you could we're gonna we're, we're hoping to take questions in a little bit so if you're able to maybe take about the next like maybe seven minutes or so would that be possible you think in terms of maybe bringing this outline to a close is that possible you think oh very possible i'm in okay. fact just about done with it here oh very good. Um, very good yeah so i mean i would just i would just comment on the third sort of exemption the so-called philosophical or conscientious objection or exemption and uh, claim for exemption and so this would be the weakest of the three and you know, it's not going to hold much if this becomes a major issue because it, then we're going to face, um, you know, we're going to face under-inclusivity issues. So the state's not going to, um, you know, just leave this on the table like that. Okay. I had a, another question in the comments. Is, is fear of death a possible conscientious objection since the, the 33 Norwegians have died? Um, is that a case that you could bring up legally, um, the number well, of deaths that are associated with the vaccine? I mean, I would be arguing that under a medical exemption, I'd okay. be saying that this is dangerous, you know, sure. so, um, so you could, you could potentially make a, or, or, or try to make a medical exemption on, on grounds other than having a doctor's note that specifically says that you might possibly be one of those people who could have an adverse event. Possibly. I, I don't, I, I think so. Um, I, I'm not, there's going to be specific procedural matters at play, sure. but you know, one state might say you need a, you know, two doctor's notes. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, I know in the case of, you know, school vaccines in a lot of states, for instance, I mean, a request for an exemption, regardless of what it's under has never been rejected. So this is a, you know, very loose standard. In, in all states or some states? No, just in some states. Okay. Yeah. Other states, no, they're very, um, you know, they've successfully and, been very strict. 
last year or the year before California passed some really restrictive legislation that made it very oh. difficult to even get medical exemptions. So it's not surprising. No, not really at all. Yeah, not at all. Um, yeah, so actually, I mean, Father, that's that's sort of the extent I wanted to cover leading into um, mm. the, um, you know, what I think is likely to happen with the federal government stepping in. Okay. So again, sort of to get it, so a fundamental right, which is part of the history of the tradition of the United States, to refuse medical treatment. But then there's these compelling interests that a state might have that would allow it to perhaps sort of run into that particular fundamental right and begin to um, uh, sort of over, to, to step into, a, in, into, into taking away that right or at least uh, infringing upon that right because of the sort of a, a crisis within the society. I hope that's about right. I think with this, what you said. Um, but let's, let's take it for, for a little bit here um, in terms of a question. Um, what about, so, so if you don't want the vaccine, would you then have the right to say, I'll isolate? That's under current law, under most iterations of the Model Act and the Model Act itself, Yes, you would. Um, I mean, the question really becomes like, you know, if we're in Arizona or we're in Florida and it's declared that, uh, you know, in certain scenarios, individuals can be vaccinated by any means necessary, you know, who's coming to the door? Who's doing this? I have no idea how this plays out. Um, if 1% of people are saying no, that's one thing. If you have 40% of people saying no, it seems a little harder to, you know, round everyone up and stick them. Um, but, you know, stranger things have happened. I've been surprised this year about, uh, you know, myriad issues. Right. Now, what about the issue of, of like private companies? Not oh, good question. Vaccinations. Right. So everything we've talked about today is government actors. Now, in the context of a private employer, we've got several issues going on. So in some sense, there may be additional statutory protections and this would you know, be unions, things like this. So for instance, there's a case on the books about nurses, healthcare workers that were mandated to get influenza vaccines. And because the employer did not go through the proper union channels, they lost in court. So, I mean, basically employment is a, is largely a contractual issue. And so this can cut both ways, right? So, I mean, your, your employment status is not going to be eligible for strict scrutiny analysis because it's a property right. Um, you're still going to be um, entitled to potentially entitled to notice in a hearing and so on and so forth. And perhaps there's, um, you know, discrimination laws or um, equal protection issues that might be at work if the employer runs afoul of that. Um, but there's really, I mean, you know, if, if I'm an accountant who for the last year has worked virtually, then it seems that the employer would have a difficult time arguing that a condition of my employment is to be vaccinated. 
Um, if I'm a... Lest you infect your cat. What's this? I said, lest you infect your cat. Right. Yeah, this would not be good. I, I have read about some trans species crossover, a tiger. <laughs> I don't want to uh, hear about that. I think that might be laughable, but I haven't actually looked at <laughs> it. Oh, okay. I'll vaccinate the tiger then. That's probably. My father is um, only 29% effective. That's right. Um, so, sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. I mean, basically, there. If you know, if you're, if you're, um, I mean, we have to contextualize this properly. I mean, if the government is already mandating vaccines, then, you know, if your employer is doing so as well, it's sort of. Uh, you know, superfluous. Right. If the government's not, then you're asked, you, you know, you're asked, why is this employer doing so? And certainly healthcare workers are subject to this sort of thing under the auspices of, uh, you know, we're dealing with, you know, people who have lowered immune systems and are sick and that kind of thing. Um, military don't really have any options. If you want to work in the military for the federal government, you're going to get vaccinated and, you know, as a policy prescription, this makes some level of sense. But if, you know, if you work at Kroger's and you're stocking shelves and, you know, you're going to be around customers, I mean, certainly there is, um, you know, common law doctrine about a, um, an employer can be potentially liable for the torts of the employees. So, I mean, you can say that maybe they have uh, some interest in ensuring that their employer employees are uh, vaccinated, but I don't, I don't think there's a lot of like uh, case law here. I'm not an employment I, law lawyer. I have a question. Yeah. Maybe this is beyond the scope of this, but it, so say you're an employer and you mandate the vaccine and I, and I take the vaccine because it's mandated, which, I wouldn't do so this is highly hypothetical mm -hmm. um and and i i develop uh some of these super adverse reactions i start i start seizing and i can't go back to work is my employer liable for mandating that for well compensation for the injury if i'm your employer in this situation i'm going to make sure you sign a consent form okay um I, I so how, like, you know. like what, but like, it's not consent if it's right. mandated consent. I mean, I guess you could consent to, to quit, but. Right. So then we have a, you know, then we have a trade-off and we have a, you know, we're off to the races with a fact intensive analysis and lawyers making arguments on each side. I mean, certainly plausibly, if your employer requires you to do something that injures you, you know, there can be a cause of action there. Mm -hmm. Um, how attenuated well, is it I, going to be? You know, say, well, I, I, I'll get this vaccine if you'll sign a form that you'll, you know, guarantee X, Y, or Z if I receive an injury from it. I mean, you could certainly I, say this. I've actually I mean, known I, parents who've taken similar sorts of things to doctor's offices and said, you know, I'll, I'll give my child the vaccine that you're insisting on if you'll sign this form that you'll be, you'll, you will hold yourself liable if they have an adverse reaction to it. I mean, I, I can't imagine any doctor signed this. They did not. Yeah. So, they I mean, out of being yeah, I don't, I don't really see anybody's going to agree to such terms. Right. I mean, as a general matter, the employer is going to have uh, Yeah, it's a little bit more power than the doctor. Yeah, a little more bargaining power there. Obviously. So, um, I think also you mentioned uh, when we had like a, a meeting about this um, particular topic, 
Pam had said, and we sort of repeated it today, that just taking the vaccine does not necessarily make you non-infectious towards others. In fact, it may not affect infectivity. And so what about the argument, which is very present today, at least in uh, popular culture, my body, my choice. The notion that, well, you know, I'll take whatever comes and because it, it doesn't stop infectivity per se, then I'll decide not to take the um, the particular vaccine because my body is, is my possession. I have ownership over it. Uh, well, I mean, the my body, my choice argument is of course sacrosanct. So if we can invoke it, then we should win. Um, if we suppose that there is, uh, you know, it's completely your choice. So, you know, you can take this 100% safe vitamin. And if you don't, you're going to die in an hour. Presuming that you have confidence and you're an adult, there's no legal authority that can make you take that. In fact, there's, there's some case law. And I mean, this isn't, I don't even think this is at the federal level, but I think it's in your neck of the woods there. Um, where... A Jehovah's Witness will refuse a blood transfusion after giving birth. And perhaps the state argument would be something like, well, if you die, then you're not going to be there for this child, right? So this seems roughly, you know, we're going to give you this blood transfusion and it's in the interest of this child. And I, I don't believe that it could be done in that context. So... The my body, my choice argument is very strong. Now, where things get hairy is if it's the case that infectivity is lowered, right? So if infectivity is low, yes? Sorry. We have no data on that. And we will have no data on that because Pfizer and Moderna have both been quietly vaccinating their placebo groups. So there, we will not have any data after after this month probably on on comparing so could, could you repeat that again pam you're saying that pfizer when they did their testing had a placebo group and a group that received the vaccine now they're actually yes. vaccinating yes so so the group that received the placebo it was actually a saline placebo there are very few vaccine studies where a true saline placebo is given um to a significant number of participants in some cases is given to an insignificant number and the placebo groups are lumped together to make the data analysis. And in other cases, um, people are given the, the vaccine minus the active ingredients. So they're given all the adjuvants and everything else that is supposed to be causing allergic reactions. And then where they're given another vaccine as a placebo. In this case, they were given a true saline placebo, but those saline placebo participants, because it is not ethical to withhold an effective vaccine in a pandemic, are now being offered the opportunity to take the actual vaccine. And if you were participating in the vaccine trials, the likelihood of you being willing to take the actual vaccine is relatively high um, because you had a 50-50 shot of getting stuck with it in the first place. So I don't, I don't see there being a significantly large placebo group willing to stick around and say, no, in the interest of science, I'm, I'm gonna you know, keep myself unvaccinated so that we can actually have some data here. So they're, they're basically destroying their control group. And if my research methods class did this, they would fail on their project, Father. Right, <laughs> this exactly. is bad science. Bad science. We believe in science, exactly. <laughs> Except when it's not uh, helpful to our cause. Um, 
So if we, if we could get to some questions from our good people here who have written in. Some of them have sort of been answered in a way, um, like the CDF statement, which I read parts of earlier on the COVID vaccine, does it undermine a Catholic's ability to claim a religious exemption under the law? I think our lawyer friend uh, again was saying that the issue that, well, you know, obviously it's better not to have that statement than to have it, but, you know, the religious, you know, sort of thoughts of the individual, this is how he feels about the matter, that this vaccination is something that would be against uh, his religious viewpoints, um, I think would become paramount. But that's, uh, is, that, is that right, do you think, uh, for a good lawyer friend there? Yes, Father, absolutely. Good. Next question, how would the courts view, and, and you've touched on this too also, how would the courts view an individual objection to an employer? I honestly thought you had already read that question, Father. When you What's that? About, I honestly thought you had already read that question when you asked him about. Oh, yes, yes, I hadn't, but we've answered that too. I think our good friend has answered that too, that uh, if you have mandated vaccines from the government, well, then the employer, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of situation in, in regards to the uh, uh, sort of the society. If government's mandated, then the employer could certainly be a part of that mandate. Um, and of course, it's contractual, which I think uh, was also mentioned. It's part of, you know, you sign up for certain things. Uh, but there was that case mentioned also about that uh, group of nurses uh, that the mandate was uh, sort of placed upon them without checking through the union first. Um, and so the court actually ruled in favor of the nurses who were objecting to the uh, particular vaccine. Is that right again too? Correct, Father, yes. Okay, good. Now this one is for Pam. Pam, can you mention how low the actual reporting is versus the actual real numbers in the vaccine reporting system for issues and death? I believe it's one to ten percent reporting versus the real numbers. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so good. I actually I, I meant to to discuss that at the beginning. So I, I said that there were um, uh, close to seven thousand people, so six thousand seven hundred ish, um, who had reported adverse reactions to VARES from the COVID vaccine. Um, but it, depending on who you ask, that well, the, well, everybody will tell you that the VARES system um, is is not sufficient to actually um, give us data on post-safety trial surveillance for vaccines. And part of this is because it's self-reported and so nobody's really going in and saying, was well, this causally connected to the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But a larger problem is because most people don't even know about VAERS and or they don't know that what they're experiencing is a vaccine reaction. Now, what we've seen up to this point, most people are aware it's a vaccine reaction because it's happening right after vaccination. There's a number of things that can happen that, that develop over time. And as they develop over time, they, they, it may be difficult for the individual to see, uh, to, to read a connection back to a vaccine that was administered. So it's, it's thought that um, between one and 10% of actual vaccine related incidences are reported to VAERS. And I, I would say that I, I think it's probably on the lower end of that. And I, I heard some statistics today that sort of supported that. There was um, a series of emails from the head of the CDC that were requested under the Freedom of Information Act. And when they were released, 
there was some information in there where, um, you know, folks were discussing the effectiveness of VAERS and they said, you know, and I, I forget the exact actual, actual number, I think it was 33. There had been 33 deaths reported for this particular vaccine and they were expecting in the neighborhood of 30,000. Um, so, uh, yeah, maybe it wasn't 30,000. That's less than 1%. I can't math this late at night. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was listening while I was was uh, doing my normal daytime job as well. So, um, but definitely, definitely on the lower end of that. So, so one percent or potentially even less. Okay. On the Children of God website, a person asks. Remember, that's the website that discusses issues of vaccinations from a Catholic perspective. On the Children of God website, they have numerous vaccines listed. It looks like one, Sorrento does not have any connection to the abort to aborted babies. Is that true? And could we receive that vaccine? Would it be safe? If we are forced, is that the one to get? If yes, how does one go about asking for that particular vaccine? So we'll put aside, let's say, healthcare choices and whether or not that's the best healthcare choice. And let's just talk about the objectionable part about where these particular vaccines were generated from or where they were tested in, sure. um, and whether or not Sorrento actually has a COVID version of a vaccine, that they're one of the companies that contracted with the, uh, the federal government. Um, so Pam, maybe you could touch on that. Um, sure. I'll just touch on saying that, well, if you feel that that healthcare choice is proper, uh, then to find an unobjectionable, untainted, irreproachable vaccine would be the proper choice. But Pam, do they actually, does Sorrento actually have a COVID version? Not a currently approved. In the works. Uh, there's a number of vaccines in the works, a, a ridiculous number. And, and it's all that data is directly available on Children of for Life's website. They, they list all the vaccines that are in production and whether or not they're derived from the wood and fetal cells. And so, um, it's very likely that there there is something in the works by Sorrento, but whether it will ever be licensed or not is another question. So right now you could not go into your doctor's office and ask for the Sorrento vaccine because they don't think it's been approved. Um, I certainly haven't heard anything about it in the news. Um, it, it, and, and as to the question, would it be safe? You, you would have to look at the data. Um, you would have to, to look at their safety trials. You would have to look at what they were actually looking for. Are they actually looking for a, a, a real endpoint or a surrogate endpoint? Um, you know, and what, what are the risks associated with it? You know, if there's a bunch of people in the trial who have Bell's palsy, then you have to sort of reconcile yourself that you might get Bell's palsy if you take that vaccine. Um, so that's, that's an individual, uh, uh, investigative issue there. Good. Um, this person asks, and I know this person who's asking this question, you know, what is the best argument to get out of this vaccine? Um, so this person works for a hospital group, and uh, I'm not sure if I'm describing this in a, a perfectly correct fashion, but sort of the independent contractor who is working with a hospital group, um, but he is uh, sort of concerned because I, th I guess the flu shot is, is mandated for him, although he is largely, I believe, behind a computer screen, oftentimes at home, working remotely, and also is um, in a situation where he's just doing a lot of computer imaging. 
sort of for to send to various doctors, uh, various sort of sort of X-ray-like sort of imaging that is being sent back and forth. And you know, I mean, I'm sure he goes to the hospital to visit with certain doctors at times, but very distant connection with actually working with infected patients who might have lowered immune systems. So a good lawyer friend, what about that situation? You mentioned it a, a bit, it would be more hard for the, the particular hospital to mandate a vaccine vaccination or a flu shot even for someone who was so remote from the actual sort of work of a hospital more directly with, 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 with patients who are in the, yeah, obviously there because of a sickness or some other difficulty. Right. So I'm aware that certain hospital groups, if someone is not vaccinated with the uh, influence of vaccine, then that employee will be subject to additional requirements. Things like, uh, you know, they're easily identifiable by their, you know, name tag badge or perhaps they're put in a different area of the hospital or they take a leave of absence of some sort. Um, I, mean, I mean, this sort of question is difficult to answer in the abstract. If the hospital has a mandate and they have no, they have no exemptions available in that mandate, then you know, you're, you're, you're looking at um, administrative and or constitutional arguments that are going to be, um, you know, all in all weaker than in the case of non-employment. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you'd, I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to look at HR, you'd have to look at numerous, you know, it's just not an analysis that can be, uh, you know, stated with any sort of firmness without knowing all of the specific details. Um, yeah. Okay. I have heard one person asks, um, the tests may be tainted and that there are some videos that show live organisms in them. I'm not sure about this. I've heard about this, but I, I haven't, you know, I'm not sure how that can be completely verified, but okay. So supposedly some tests this person has heard may have live organisms within the sort of testing instrument perhaps. What about a company forcing a test, a COVID test upon a healthy employee? How do we handle also the new contact tracing and testing issues as well? Is that something that our good lawyer friend could uh, uh, maybe comment on? Uh, so, I mean, the contact tracing is going to implicate various privacy concerns. It's going to implicate HIPAA. This is not... Uh, my area of law, um, I, I would have to do research here to really okay. comment beyond speculation. Okay. What about the what about uh, that that model act that you had mentioned? Uh, maybe some exemptions. This person asks, can can you claim two exemptions under mm -hmm. the model act? Yeah, there's nothing that would preclude you from doing so. Um, obviously, only you know. It's, you, you, you can't put it in the bank for later. If, uh, you know, both of them pass, then, you know, you're exempt. Um, but yeah, if you, if you, if you have an argument that applies to, you know, more than one, then you would, um, assumably argue both. Okay. 
Also, um, don't exemptions require a letter? You mentioned this earlier. A letter signed by a doctor or a medical provider or maybe a priest. Will a potential vaccinator accept an individual's opinion? Uh, do you think so? And, and you think there needs to be a letter? Would that be helpful at least? Oh, well, I mean, the vaccinator, I'm not, I'm not sure who this, this would be precisely. Is it, you know, a healthcare provider that's going to door to door or are we referring to that, you know, the public health authority? Um, as a general matter, administratively, there, you know, could be different requirements. And again, I mean, I would look to the um, school, the mandated school vaccines situation where at times, yes, you might need a letter and at other times it just, uh, you know, sign on the dotted line and, uh, you know, everyone is pushed through. So this is going to be specific to how, uh, you know, not only as the model act is uh, enacted by a given state, but then how the administrative authority promulgates rules in order to implement, uh, you know, the act. So it's, again, this is just, I mean, there's just, um, there's just too much going on there to like decisively answer it. So I have to give the, uh, the, the favorite lawyer answer of it depends. <laughs> All I know is whatever that individual is, it sounds like a very fearsome person, the vaccinator. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I shudder here for a minute. <laughs> is afraid of the vaccinator. Um, this might be slightly off topic, a person asks, but what objections can be made legally? We thought this might come up legally to those <laughs> who would issue a mask mandate. Uh, it's not legislation per se, it's a mask mandate, executive order, I guess, from governors. Is that something that could be objected as a personal health care choice? It can be. Uh, I, I am familiar in uh, the state of Illinois, for instance, that there, and I'm assuming this is elsewhere as well, that you can, um, if you have a medical condition, then that would preclude you from wearing the mask, then you can do so. Now, I don't know if this is going to, you know, to what, um, to what um, degree people can inquire here. So um, is this going to still get you in, you know, some sort of trouble because many people get upset regardless. Um, you know, I might draw an analog to, uh, you know, Second Amendment, walking down the road, open carry. You may be within your legal rights, but, you know, you might be uh, charged with um, disturbing the peace. So, you know, it's, it's just, th these can play out in numerous ways. You know, if you're going to go into the grocery store and you know, you suffer from asthma and you have a viable medical reason, you know, as a, you have a viable medical reason why you wouldn't be wearing the mask and you can explain that. Maybe people are like, hey, cool, I understand. Or maybe, um, you know, you're on YouTube as a crazy person and, you know, things escalate from there. Uh, the, I guess that would be the, the extent of the comment there. I mean, you couldn't just, uh, th there would have to be some, uh, presumably if you're making a medical claim pertaining to mass, it would have to be, you know, grounded on some, uh, you, you would have to have some factual basis. Can you still hear, Father? 
Can you hear me, Pam? I can hear you. All right. I didn't know if I was lost. Okay. Um, my internet connection is getting a bit weak right now, so uh, I'm missing some of that. But that's, I think, something that we can maybe uh, close on. Uh, would you want to add anything, either of you, to sort of sort of summarize or maybe make a comment that might be practically helpful to any of our good people? Maybe our beginning with uh, our good lawyer friend and then maybe going to Pam after uh, that. Well, I always um, like to be helpful. So, I mean, I guess, I guess the, the, the fundamental takeaway is that it seems highly unlikely, though, perhaps not a non-zero possibility that, you know, people are going to be forcefully injected anytime soon. Um, legally, this could play out in numerous ways. If you're somebody who, you know, works from home and have a, you know, robust or multiple streams of income, that puts you in a far different situation than somebody that's, you know, beholden to a employer. Um, if you're someone that can credibly claim a medical exemption or a religious exemption, then again, that if, if the aim is to avoid being vaccinated and you're willing to be quarantined or isolated for whatever period of time, then that it, there doesn't seem to be, you know, this is just trade-off at that point, right? I mean, maybe somebody would prefer not to be vaccinated, but they do a cost-benefit analysis and they decide to go for it. And maybe lots and lots of people do that. So then we have far fewer people deciding to, uh, you know, self-isolate or self-quarantine. Um, an order could be issued that, you know, covers lots of people. And then we might have a essentially a class action in the administrative context where the, um, you know, a, a large swath of issues are going to be decided all at once. I guess the issue with COVID is that it would seem almost like the quarantine would have to go on indefinitely if we're not sure if masks and other people being vaccinated even lower infectivity. Uh, Pam, if somebody tests, if someone had COVID and they test positive for antibodies, mm -hmm. are they going to be infectious at that point, potentially? All the data that we have up to this point indicates that because you know this disease has only been around for less than a year, um, but it, it indicates that once you've been infected, you you do have a fairly re robust immune response, and um, you you maintain neutralizing antibody titers. Most people do, and again, not that antibodies are the be all and end all of immunity, but it's it's one marker we can test. Um, and so uh, the the research that's being published, you know, just even this month is indicating that actually natural infection does produce um, lasting immunity. And truly there's no reason to think that it wouldn't. I mean, there are very few diseases that, that we have short-term immunity for. Um, I, I think, I can't remember if it's diphtheria or pertussis um, is one of those diseases that we, there's a naturally like less than 10 year immunity to and um, tetanus is the same. It's, 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 it's naturally, I think, 10 years of immunity or, or no, you never naturally gain immunity to tetanus. Um, but those are the only two disease, communicable diseases in, you know, that I know of that 
that you wouldn't develop a lasting antibody response to. You, we've tracked lasting antibody responses to SARS. Um, we've tracked lasting, I'm sure people have lasting antibody responses to the other coronaviruses that infect humans before that commonly infect them. There's even cross-reactivity and, and there's reason to believe that you don't even have to be infected to be immune because if you've been infected by, um, if you're infected by SARS, you're certainly immune, but that's a very small amount of people. But um, if you've been infected by some of these other coronaviruses, um, it's possible that you could be immune to SARS-CoV-2 and never develop symptoms. So I don't think there's any reason to think that, that there's going to be any issues with natural immunity. Um, I'm concerned that they're not testing for that prior to administering vaccines because um, the, the vaccine can be associated with what's called antibody-dependent enhancement, which can cause an overactive immune response. And if you've already been infected and then get vaccinated, um, we don't really know what will happen to you in that case, but the CDC is saying, no, go ahead and just get it anyway, regardless of your your antibody status. Um, so just for people's own personal decision-making, it might be good to get an antibody test before you choose to be vaccinated if you're, if you're really set on getting vaccinated, just to make sure that there's no possibility of, of having an adverse reaction for that reason. Um, but, but, I'm oh, off on a tangent there. No, no, that's good. But so if I'm immune from due to antibodies, mm -hmm. am I infectious then? Or you don't uh, know? No. The, 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 the data on asymptomatic, so generally speaking, if you're immune, you're not infectious. Um, there's been very, very few cases where, where, where that's happened in typhoid Mary's in major one, um, where she was continuing to infect people with typhus despite never actually um, uh, developing symptoms herself. Right. Um, but that, like, there, there's no evidence really, as far as I can tell, there's, there's no good solid evidence of asymptomatic, um, asymptomatic transmission of COVID. There's pre-symptomatic transmission. So say you've never had COVID, you get exposed to SARS-CoV-2, you are infectious as the virus sort of starts building up to symptoms. But if, if, you're, if you're not going to have any symptoms at all, if you're, if you're already immune and you get exposed to the virus, you can't infect somebody else. Okay, so, you know, isolation and quarantine are defined in different ways. In one way, there's reference to simply exposure, and another would be whether or not you're communicable or infectious. Okay. So if it's the latter, and then you show antibodies, it would seem that as an administrative matter, this would then preclude the order from continuing. So yeah, I mean, on a rational level, right? So on a rational level, if you got an antibody test and you had antibodies, then you should be able to go anywhere, not wear a mask, not get a vaccine, you know, get on a plane, who the heck cares? Because you're not going to be able to transmit the disease. Um, and, and there's no reason to think that that would be any, that immunity would be any less robust than, um, you know, what we, we generally observe. Uh, and certainly the data is supporting that it, it, it does stick around. Um, certainly it'll be better than the vaccine-induced immunity naturally. I'm just going to interrupt just a bit and uh, uh, bring it to a close, uh, but I want to thank uh, both of our panelists for contributing both in the area of uh, a health uh, uh, sort of uh, st statement, statements regarding the health of vaccines and uh, the issues of the vaccine injuries and things like that, and we also thank our other panelists for giving some legal sort of definitions and some legal context to the issue of vaccines. And we thank you for 
also reviewing and um, and uh, we thank you also. I'm going to be sending out a, a a letter pretty soon from a pastor from a traditional parish um, who uh, gave a very very nice letter to his parishioners uh, regarding um, this COVID. 19 vaccine. So uh, you'll be getting that soon, but thank you for tuning in and let's end with a prayer and I'll give you a blessing in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Dominus vobiscum ecum spiritu tuo. Through the session of our Blessed Mother and good Saint Joseph. Benedictio omnipotentis patris et fidei et spiritus sanctus super vos et maniat semper. Amen. God bless you. Thank you to everybody. Bye bye now.